Today on Prairie Design Lab, four award-winning students and grads of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture and Ryerson University bring forward their plans to dramatically enhance life in Canada's largest city. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, episode 26 called Alluvium. Our podcast is created with the help of the graduates, students, faculty, and allies of the U of M, home of the most experienced, creative, and environmentally aware architecture faculty in Western Canada. Today, our focus is on their redesign of a 50-year-old legendary Toronto waterfront park. Let me set the stage for you with this little 70s theme song. That's a taste of the theme song from the opening of Ontario Place back in 1971. At the end of March this year, University of Manitoba Architecture Master's Thesis student Tally Budman and an interdisciplinary team earned special mention and a cash award for their competition entry to the Ontario Place Call for Counter Proposals. Their entry was called Alluvium, Water, Habitat and Community, And it envisions a habitat on Toronto's waterfront that redefines relationships with nature and mitigates climate change. It was created by three students from the University of Manitoba, Tally Budman, Connery Friesen, a Master's of Architecture graduate in 2020, Ryan Coates, a Master's of Landscape Architecture graduate in 2017, and Paul Arkelander, a Ryerson University Master of Planning student. The Manitoba Ryerson proposal was one of three projects selected for recognition by a distinguished international jury from more than 40 entries from across Canada. The four team members join me now. Hello, Tally. Hi, good morning. Hello, Connery. Good morning. Hello, Paul in Toronto. Good morning. And hello, Ryan Coates. Hello, hello. For those who don't know Ontario Place, how would you describe what Ontario Place is, or should I say what it was? public park that opened in 1971 as really a public park for the people of Ontario and it really became a place for really getting away from um, the busy city life and the site of course is located in Toronto's waterfront and was built I believe in direct response to Montreal's Expo 67 which had been you know a very successful project for bringing a lot of people to Montreal at the time. The park was based on really this idea of democratic design. So all type of attractions on the site, from what I understand, used to be completely free, which really encouraged all people to really attend and enjoy the park as much as they wanted. Unfortunately, with time, more and more of their attractions and their programs became paid activities, which, of course, made people go less and less. And the park started to suffer a bit more neglect throughout the years, which of course brings us to today where most of the park has been closed for 10 years or so. It's kind of in a a strange state right now where part of it is open as a public park and people are going regularly. It's actually a, a relatively new, really nice park. Part of it, you can still see sort of the decaying structures from the original park, like the silos and you can walk around them, um, although they're closed off. Uh, Another part is still running, the IMAX is still operating as normal, so it's really a mixture of uh, different spaces at the moment. 
Connery, what was special about Ontario Place that attracted the interest of you for? We kind of have this U of M logic uh, instills this interest in entropic design or things that are slowly decaying and curating over time. But just the competition and the ability to propose something for the future kind of sparked interest. And immediately me, Ryan and Tally collectively decided, let's do this. And Paul was kind of the fourth that jumped in later since we really wanted someone that could speak from the Toronto perspective. He compounded that knowledge base with his city planning background. As interesting as it is, it was the actual decay that really sparked the interest and just the opportunity to propose something new. Ryan, what interested this largely Manitoban team in this call for uh, counter-proposals? What's a counter-proposal, first of all? A counter-proposal is basically the way the competition was set up is in direct response to some of the ambitions and initiatives that current government of Ontario is, has plans for the space and, and redeveloping it and potentially changing that relationship to the public, working more towards privatization of the space, commercialization of it. So the counterproposal, the competition sets up basically asking the question of what could be more public, a more uh, communal type of mission for how to reconsider this space rather than as a privatized entity. I read your counterproposal pretty carefully. And at the core of it, you stated an aim to heighten awareness of human impact on nature by redefining relationships with it rather than relying on technology to solve our problems. This team believes that the climate crisis originated from a social issue. What's meant by that? Obviously, we're in a climate crisis and there is something that needs to be done about it. But rather than focusing on solutions, why don't we take a step back and understand where that's coming from? I really do think it originates from this anthropocentric mindset in which humans sort of believe they are above nature and other beings. So it really leads us to this toxic behavior in which we really harm the environment and really exploit it for our benefits. The climate crisis is a very big thing and there are many factors. I, I do think the roots sort of come from that type of thinking. In many different ways, what we try and do is really work on, uh, in really subtle ways, this relationship that we have to nature, to change it from one of control to one of respect. Again, in subtle ways, try and mitigate the climate crisis that we experience today. So, Connery, in what way did the climate crisis shape your plans for Ontario Place? All of our proposals don't actually propose anything new to the site. Our commentary is revitalizing the things that are there and really curating their life in the future, if, if you can speak to a building having a life. But our design is very much about just curating what's there and as time goes on, just pushing the architecture in a specific way that the result is this more open park and people just be able to inhabit it in the way that they're interestingly enough, like in the COVID crisis, they're using that park right now. It's kind of this open park that has these dilapidated structures around it. Having visited Ontario Place myself and being inside the pods and sat in the cinosphere, how much of that infrastructure would your proposal preserve or improve upon? We didn't touch the IMAX center itself. My specific portion was the silos and they weren't a part of Michael Huff's initial proposal for Ontario Place. But rather than taking it down, I dissected it kind of surgical and 
try to open it or allow the structure to just be taken over by time. And that's what a lot of our individual proposals are about, is just considering time in a sense, not in one person's life, but just the life of the city and just how can this park just have a willingness to allow people to inhabit it, but uncurated. Part of the brief was to really think about heritage value and the conservation of some of the structures and some of the original landscape of uh, Michael Huff's design, particularly in that central section of the park space. Looking at those structures, we really just wanted to reconsider how they might be programmed, how they might be used, because they have really immense and interesting value in terms of the, the legacy of that uh, vision from the original design. And so we were really trying to think about how to be inspired from that vision and carry in a new vision for the future of those spaces. Not treating them as a museological condition, but giving them a renewed and reinvigorated purpose. The proposal is called Alluvium, Water, Habitat and Community. What's meant by that name? Actually, it was a new word to me. Um, I think Paul was the one who sort of introduced it. So when I began to look at it, its definition says it's soil or sediment that's been eroded, reshaped by water, and then redeposited to a non-marine setting. So I think, again, this idea of being reshaped by water uh, really speaks to our central themes in the proposal. So by putting emphasis on forces other than that of humans on the environment, so in this case, the force of water on the environment, we try and propose a habitat, yes, for humans, but also very much so for animals and vegetation in sort of an equal way. This allows us to move away from this anthropocentric mindset of control over nature, which has been a mindset that's negatively contributed to the climate crisis. Paul, your degree, the one that you're working on, is in urban planning. And where does that fit in your proposal for Ontario Place? So I was looking at, from a historical perspective, how Ontario Place fits into the neighborhoods, but also how in the future it could connect better to the rest of the city, planned future transportation projects, you know, other innovations like micromobility that could enable people to access the site more easily, and also just sort of link it better with surrounding parkland and exhibition place and neighborhoods just to the north. In its early days, it had 3 million visitors a year. And by the time it closed, it was down to 500,000 a year. But still, Paul, that must have been a very large demand on transportation infrastructure. One thing that's changed over the decades is the emphasis now in Toronto is less on the car-centric access to sites. And I mean, when you visit the site, even now, the first thing you sort of see are enormous parking lots, which is just not what we're planning these days, right? So whereas before a lot of people would have accessed the site by car, what we were looking to do was give them other options uh, to reduce car dependency. So there's water access with water taxis from the harbor area of Toronto. There's the new subway extension coming, possibility of micromobility, which uh, enables people to access it from the stations. You can handle that amount of visitors now is through a variety of different transportation options as opposed to cars. I'd like to talk more in detail with uh, the others about the components of the proposal that you focused on. Connery, you focused on the open aviary part of the proposal. Yeah. What's that? Interestingly enough, the silos were formerly 
it was a few different programmatic elements. It was the world of weather uh, at one point in its time. I believe that was more towards its closing. And I believe that its initial conception, it was uh, an exhibition space to share the wonders of the natural environment of Northwestern Ontario. So the open aviary kind of as an answer to that, which previously these other two programs were animating something that wasn't there. It was faking, if you will, the weather conditions and also the environments of the Northwest. So the open aviary is the anti-Anthropocene version of that, which is actually to just dissect the silos and just allow nature to take over firstly. Um, But the logic is that the nature that does take over will be indigenous plants and plant life that is able to feed indigenous songbirds and then also as a place for migratory birds to come as they migrate south. So the logic is that by actually opening and curating the decay of the silos, it can become something that actually is inhabitable by nature. Ryan, could you talk a bit about the Urban Climate Adaptation Center portion that you worked on in the East Island Park and Forest? Those were approached as related conditions that would seed each other. The first part you mentioned about the Urban Climate Adaptation Center, we wanted to reconsider the pods as a new type of infrastructure for the city that would help to adapt the native biome to a changing climate regime. In converting them to greenhouses, the idea was that the types of plants that are in a migratory condition as the climate changes could be adapted in these pods to learn how to exist in this new climate condition. From there, the results of those pods would be seeded out into the park in the East Island and then as well further out into the city. So we were really trying to think of it as a, an infrastructure, not just for the park, but actually for the entire city. With the, the park space, the idea was simply to make some green space for downtown Toronto, which does have a deficit of access to green space and particularly to large areas of green space. And just the way that we look at the available area in the East Island, it just seemed like a pretty obvious gesture, but there's something to be said for sometimes the simple move can be the most generous one. Tally, you focused on what's called the rain tower. What's that? The rain tower intervention is based off of an existing water slide structure that used to be on the East Island. But what remains of the structure today is only the tower that people would have used to actually access the slides at the time. And although the tower seems to be in fairly good condition, I mean, of course, it's not in its original state. There's sort of signs of weathering and some degree of decay, but overall it is in a good condition, yet it's been completely fenced off and remains inaccessible to people, which again is unfortunate because the way we see it, there's a lot of interesting architectural opportunity that rises out of these leftover structures on the site. The rain tower, hence its name, essentially aims to heighten an awareness that there has been an increase in precipitation in Toronto in this past years, which of course comes from a direct consequence of the climate change that we're experiencing. And the awareness essentially is heightened through a rainwater reservoir system that sits on the tower, which allows for rainwater to build up. So as people 
visit the park throughout the days and months, they're able to experience this buildup of rainwater. And then once this reservoir fills up, it gives way to an event in which a valve is opened and the water is allowed to flow through a proposed walkway that people would be able to access. So I think essentially the intervention is sort of doing two things. So the main one is, of course, as this event is directly related to how much it rains in Toronto, the frequency of the event may begin to sort of trigger people's understanding that there is an issue of increasing precipitation. So maybe a change is overdue. And then the other thing that it's doing goes back to this idea of human relationship to nature, in this case, water specifically. So as people walk alongside the water in this proposed walkway, have the opportunity to really engage with it, play with it, observe it, watch it freeze over the seasons, and then watch it melt again, which again presents this opportunity for really learning from water and starting to respect it and care for it in order to deal with the larger issue of climate change. I'm curious as to whether you've taken into account any Indigenous presence in your proposal. The name for Toronto is a Mohawk name, Toronto. And I'm wondering if you've incorporated any of the thinking now because there's a developing sensitivity around the history and land use of Indigenous peoples all across the Western Hemisphere, certainly. And I'm wondering if you've given any thought to that in your proposal for Alluvium. We initially would like to have incorporated a specific piece of architecture if that spoke to the indigeneity of the site itself. But as none of us are Indigenous, we didn't really feel it appropriate. But our team's way of tackling that, interestingly enough, and maybe we should have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but we keep going back to this idea of man over nature or the Anthropocene. And that was kind of the overall theme and arc of our entire proposal. But the island itself is actually a man-made thing. It's not natural. And early in our meetings, we spoke to the island as kind of this monstrous Frankensteinian thing that was created because it was actually cheaper to build land than it was to buy land. And then it became a theme park, interestingly enough, which is interesting narrative of man-made piece of land. And it's very anti-Indigenous, if you will, because of this. Instead of purchasing land off the Indigenous community, we're just going to make our own. So the whole logic behind the island is very anti-Indigenous. And unfortunately, like we weren't able to incorporate some specific piece of architecture that was rooted in the Indigenous community. In the nearby Trillium Park, they have, Paul mentioned this project as a, a precedent for us, the Moccasin Path. So it's this landscape feature that expresses the Indigenous identity of the island, Toronto specifically, or more broadly, I should say. But that was the overall thing is our approach to tackling Indigenous identity was bringing attention that this thing was a monster or this Frankenstein object that was purely man-made and our logic was as a way of asking for forgiveness to give this island back to nature. I'd also just add, I think um, I like at the core of the, the vision behind the project is this long-term succession of the land back to a more sort of natural state. It speaks to this um, Haudenosaunee principle, seven generations, um, which we mentioned in our engagement piece as well, um, which is just thinking sort of seven generations into the future and how people in the future of this space will respond to it and how we can develop it in such a way that it's still there to be enjoyed for future generations. Did you have to give any consideration in your counterproposal to the budget that would be required to create what you want for Ontario Place? 
You laugh. The short, answer. the short answer is no. For hypothetical purposes, if this were a real proposal, it was getting constructed, I think all of us would safely make the argument that we're actually just going to take some cranes in, some heavy equipment, and carefully surgically take away from what's there rather than adding. It would be very budget conscious <laughs> in short. No, it was not ever a part of the conversation, but I think given the context of the, the competition or the future of Ontario Place Committee, the whole competition is just to bring attention to these various elements of Ontario Place or just bring attention to the potential for that place to no longer exist. Through careful curation, speaking to the overall theme of the competition itself, it was about bringing attention to the value of Ontario Place and the value that the things that exist there currently has more benefit to the community surrounding Ontario Place than what the Ontario government is currently proposing, which is a casino and potentially a hotel slash resort. Your entry placed second among the 40 that were submitted. What did the judges tell you about what they especially liked about your entry, Brian? They particularly liked our proposal's consideration of the kind of the human scale that we were trying to engage and the way that we approached the space to create the opportunity for new interpretations and new community building potential. I get the sense that not that you're anti-architecture, but you take a very different approach rather than building glossy new structures, you're focusing on allowing what is there to be more naturally used and to develop its relationship with the elements, with the landscape itself. Uh, I'm kind of grasping to articulate it. I'm, I'm having a little trouble. Can any one of you help me to, to clarify the kind of core of your design message for Ontario Place? We're proposing that architecture that has lived a long life, which you can say for Ontario Place, it's now 50 years old. Rather than constructing something new, kind of want to emphasize the interesting history behind structures that do exist already. And our project is basically attempting to embrace that and bring to light the lives that Ontario Place has impacted. Historically, the role of the architect has really, in many ways been one of control. I think what that means is really trying to constrain or erase the sort of weathering and decay that is sort of inherent in architecture. So really, you know, always trying to keep everything out of the building. This idea of control over natural forces goes beyond the architectural discipline. It can be seen in many aspects of humanity, but this control does lead to environmental consequences that, you know, we face in many aspects today. But when looking specifically at the architecture discipline, I think this need for control might lead to decisions such as demolishing certain buildings that may show certain signs of aging or weathering in order to start off with a blank slate, which of course is not the most sustainable choice to go in there and, and demolish and start from scratch. By looking at the existing structures and trying to find new meanings within them. Again, it is moving away from this sort of mindset of control. And in many ways, it allows us to accept the sort of natural forces of nature that have already inflicted on these structures in the site, really accept the transformation and decay that is inherent in architectural structures.
Ryan, did you have thoughts on that as well? Alongside thinking about decay, we are also thinking about growth. In the way that we approach the overall plan of the park, the goal was really to think about how this space already contains quite a rich legacy and how that legacy can be furthered and evolve into something new, grow into something new by seeding new opportunities and new types of conditions into the space. I think that's a fairly ecological approach where we were really just thinking about what is the potential of some of these places to be reinvigorated and allow for growth, resist the desire to over control the result, really just being the initiators of some of these things. That's not to say we didn't do any design. I think this is a, a quite a designed intervention that we have proposed, but we, through that design, we're really trying to think about how the environment, how the various species that exist on the site and may come to exist on the site are just as much a collaborator with the site as the designers are. In what way did COVID affect your work on this project? Paul, go ahead. It was uh, you know, challenging for me to join a team of people who were in a different province and different city um, and were able to work together at times. But it was also beneficial, I guess, that I was able to access the site even during COVID times just to scope it out a little bit, to learn a little bit more about the structures that are there and how it's being used right now. And for those of you in Winnipeg, design in the time of COVID, a virtual exposure to a project must have really had an impact on the way that you approach the project itself. We wouldn't have had the opportunity to work with Paul if not for this COVID and Zoom design condition. I think if it was much more of a face-to-face kind of endeavor, that opportunity may not have presented itself. So I think there's also this sort of unique benefit that the kind of COVID condition uh, afforded us to actually expand our group beyond the perimeter of Winnipeg and actually incorporate and involve perspectives from a whole other province, which was really, really exciting. What was really unique about working remotely is that it really put every participant sort of on the same playing field. I mean, of course, uh, participants like Paul were able, you know, that are in Toronto were able to visit the site, but it really allowed for the sort of people putting the competition together to gather this immense amount of data on the site and share it with all the participants, which I've never participated in the texture competition before. So maybe this happens all the time, but just start out with all this really sort of rich database, you could say on the site was really uh, beneficial. I'm curious as to uh, in what way working on this project changed your thoughts about the career that you've chosen. From a planning perspective, for me, it was a really unique project compared to some of the other work that I do at Ryerson, because we don't often get a chance to work with landscape architects and architects directly. And to some extent, it's a very different approach. I've noticed that we take to projects, whereas, you know, like I mentioned before, I was looking at contextual Uh, planning frameworks and things like that and it was really interesting to hear everyone else speaking about individual uh, interventions and you know materiality and these conceptual ideas that I think planners are often left out of. 
And as a landscape architect, Ryan, what thoughts do you have about the collaborative process that you've been part of here? I think it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to take advantage of, of other minds and, and see what happens when you put multiple perspectives together. It speaks to what I hope for the way the collective design professions evolve into moving forward to be a lot more collaborative. Yeah, take advantage of specific things that each discipline brings to the table. We should be way more excited to share them. A really wonderful thing about this project is the ability to just talk to each other. That's been a really lovely part of this. Thank you for diving deep into a philosophical conversation that I wasn't quite expecting, but I found really expansive in in its perspective. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you all four of you for your time today. Interesting Thank you stuff. Thanks yeah. for the great Thank conversation. All righty. Take care. You too. All right. You too. All right. Bye. You've been listening to three people from the University of Manitoba, Connery Friesen, Ryan Coates, and Tally Budman, and Paul Archelander of Ryerson University in Toronto. Prairie Design Lab is created with the help of the graduates, faculty, students, and worldwide allies of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your writer, producer, and host. For more information about us, visit our website at prairiedesignlab.com. Special thanks today to Professor Lisa Landrum, Instructor Jason Chan, and Assistant Professor Jason Shields, who composed and recorded our theme music. You can listen to us on Spotify and on Apple and Google Podcasts. And if you like us, please subscribe. You can hear us on the radio in Winnipeg on UMFM, 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 1130. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. <laughs>